The emergency January 6th hearing with star witness, former senior White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson and the fallout, we will break it down. The Supreme Court vitiates the separation of church and state and a long-standing Supreme Court precedent called the lemon test. We will break it down. The Supreme Court guts the ability of the EPA to address climate change and basically the ability for agencies to function generally. The Trump SPAC is subpoenaed by a federal grand jury in New York in connection with a criminal probe and the Supreme Court grants petition to hear a case involving what's called the independent state legislature doctrine, a radical doctrine, but there is a radical right extremist Supreme Court, which can use this doctrine to allow radical right extremist Republicans to steal future elections. This is no joke right here. We have a lot to discuss on this episode of Legal AF, Ben Micellis and KFA. You know her as KFA, but Karen Friedman, Agnifilo, former top prosecutor out of the Manhattan DA's office, host of the midweek Legal AF. Michael Popak is not here with us this weekend. We have a lot of cases to discuss here. You know, I'm out right now in Kakula, Mexico. So if you hear birds chirping in the background, an occasional chicken or even uh, a goat, um, that's that's what you hear in the background. But there's been so many important cases that I don't know how you could just not do a legal AF this week with all of the information that needs to be discussed. Karen, so great to see you on this weekend. Great to see you too. Before we discuss uh, all these cases and, and kind of how depressing uh, the Supreme Court has become, can we just mention one piece of incredible news, which the historic and momentous, um, the the uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson is was sworn in as the first African American uh, woman Supreme Court justice in the history of the United States Supreme Court, and I just. I don't want the depressing news of the week to overshadow that incredible news and what that means going forward. The, the pers- to have it the perspective of a Black woman on the court is something that has been much needed. And I really look forward to hearing what she has to say and her lens through which she brings the perspective that she that she, her lived experience has has given her as well as her incredible, incredible uh, academic resume, you know, and 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 professional experience. I mean, she's just the best of the best. And I'm really excited to see what she has to say. And I, I want to read her dissents because I'm sure she's going to be in the, um, the minority um, with this particular composition of the Supreme Court. But I just want to acknowledge that incredible news before we, we talk about um, about the other issues. You know, elections have consequences and we see how horrific it's been when Trump's been able to appoint three justices to the Supreme Court. Uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, and how that's totally transformed the composition to a radical right extremist court. And we talk about the Supreme Court appointments like Katanji Brown Jackson versus who Trump appointed and how that makes a big difference. But also what people don't discuss or what maybe our listeners and viewers don't necessarily consider, although our legal efforts probably do, but the public at large is that hundreds and hundreds of federal judges are appointed. They're nominated by the president and people who have this radical bent um, are appointed by Trump 
people who were completely unqualified, in fact, were appointed by Trump. I mean, there were so many times where an independent organization, the American Bar Association, ranked numerous judges as just unqualified, never had to trial, never took depositions, didn't know anything about the law. But if they had a radical agenda, Trump and Mitch McConnell would push these people through, particularly if they were very young, so that they could sit on the courts and make these radical decisions for the rest of their lives. Meanwhile, on the, the side of Biden, these are qualified people, highly qualified people, the most qualified people who come from a diverse background. And it's one of the great accomplishments of the Biden administration is appointing hundreds and hundreds of diverse judges from diverse backgrounds who have incredible qualifications. So I do want to kind of point that out. Let's talk about the emergency January 6th hearing this past week. Of course, everybody knows by now about this hearing. The star witness was the senior aide to Mark Meadows, senior aide in the executive office, Cassidy Hutchinson. And I know, Karen, you looked at this testimony from the angle of a uh, former prosecutor uh, about what is the DOJ looking at now in terms of its uh, potential prosecution of Donald Trump, Mark Meadows and others. There have been some people who talked about, you know, with some of her testimony hearsay that some of it meet exceptions to hearsay. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I watched it live on the Midas Media Network and uh, with everybody else, but it wasn't until I re-listened to it um, a second time with the lens of, okay, I'm a prosecutor, let me hear what she has to say that could actually be admissible evidence in court, especially because as you point out, a lot of the naysayers after her testimony were saying, oh, but it's all hearsay, it's all hearsay. Um, so I, I re-listened to it with that perspective in mind. And I think the most significant thing from my perspective that she testified to that that really sinks Trump and and it's time to uh, to... Uh, initiate a prosecution against him is the, convers the, the conversation that she, Cassidy Hutchinson herself, heard Donald Trump have behind the stage on January 6th before he was going to go out and address the crowd. Uh, he was, they were talking about the crowd in the context of the size of a crowd because, you know, to Donald Trump, size matters. You know, he cares a lot about the size of the crowd. And, um, and he, and they were saying, well, we can't let the people in, you know, there, there's, it's a slow going in because they all have to go through magnetometers, you know, the metal detectors, because they all have weapons. And they were telling him they have, you know, spears and the spears on flagpoles and guns strapped to their belts. And they're, they're all armed at trying to come in. And, you know, it's taking time to, to get them through security. And he, I don't effing care, you know, throwing F-bombs around, that they're armed, get rid of the effing magnetometers, let my people in, let the people in, and they're not here to hurt me. And we can march to the Capitol from here. So think about what he was saying in her presence. I know they're armed. It's okay that they're armed. Let them in anyway. And we will all march to the Capitol together from here, armed. OK, so that right there takes away any uh, any argument that he didn't know and that he didn't know what could happen and that was going to happen. And then he riles them up, you know, during that speech. OK, he riles them up about marching to the Capitol armed and to go into the Capitol. And at that point, I think the DOJ, you know, any prosecution can can sort of 
take away any notion or that he had no idea. And frankly, those 187 minutes that he did nothing, okay, when, when he literally did nothing except one tweet that that's what Cassidy Hutchinson said disgusted her as, as an American and that was unpatriotic when he tweeted in the middle of that riot, knowing that they were armed and dangerous and had breached the Capitol and were chanting, hang Mike tense, that he, that he tweeted, you know, Trump's, Trump, Trump tweeted that tense didn't have the guts or whatever he said, didn't have what it takes, you know, essentially not only not calling them off, but Ryan basically sending them a message, good job guys, you know, go get tents. That's what that message was. So I really think Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, eliminated any question uh, for the DOJ that he didn't know and what his intent was on that day. The other thing I think that she provided to the DOJ that's significant is a roadmap of who they need to go after next, who they need to, you know, they've been actively serving subpoenas on, on people. And we know that because it's been widely reported, you know, the, um, the inspector general of the department of justice was this last week served, um, search warrants and subpoenas. And they, they served a search warrant on, uh, John Eastman for his, for his phone and on, um, and on the on, on Carter as well in his home, you know, they went in and kind of a, a pre-dawn raid. And so they're getting closer to the president. Well, she provided other people that I think will be next, which is Tony Ornato, um, Mr. Engel, uh, Pat Cipollone. You know, those are people who who a lot of what they testified to was even if it's if it's a hearsay exception, if I'm the prosecutor, I still want direct evidence from them. I'd, I'd subpoena them and find out what they what they had to say, and um, and try to get that direct evidence. And I'd put them in, in the grand jury under oath. Um, they might take the fifth, you know, and uh, which is you know what a lot of the people in Trump's orbit have been doing, you know. Um, uh, you know, to say, well, I'm not going to incriminate myself and you have a right to take the fifth. But the Department of Justice can then immunize them from prosecution and compel their testimony. And I think that's what's going to happen next. And, and, I, and I think we all have to steal ourselves for that possibility because, you know, um, as, as prosecutors like to say, uh, people who commit crimes don't always do it in front of, you know, priests and nuns. Well, I don't know if I would include priests in this category anymore, but, you know, um, you know, in, in front of nuns and, you know, and, and school teachers, you know, that they commit crimes with other criminals and in front of other criminals. And so to get to the head of an organization, sometimes you have to flip other criminals, you know, so they'll, they'll testify. So, you know, a, a famous example of this was, was in a mafia prosecution, you know, when they flipped Sammy the Bull Gravano, who I think killed what, over 20 people, and he only got five years in prison because he brought down the mafia. And so they're going to have, we're going to have to steal ourselves for the possibility that they're going to have to flip some really unsavory characters. Like for example, Mark Meadows, you know, I could imagine, you know, someone like him or even Giuliani, although he's such a clown at this point, I don't think, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he lacks the credibility that I think he once had um, to, you know, trust what he has to say. But I think we're, they're going to have to flip some, some people that are close to the president to get some of this direct testimony against him. Um, and we're going to have to just be prepared for that. So you mentioned hearsay out of court statement used uh, for the truth of the matter asserted. 
there are exceptions to hearsay first even though it's not technically listed or delineated as an exception to hearsay it's viewed as an exception which is a statement made by a party opponent because the party opponent the defendant in a case is in court they have the ability to testify about what they said and didn't say so if you overheard or heard something that a party opponent said that's generally viewed as an exception to hearsay um so cassidy hutchinson hearing trump saying that if there's a prosecution of trump that can come in and then there are also other exceptions like statements against penal interest um excited utterances um you know and a number of others um that would also come in uh so there are these exceptions to the hearsay doctrine that i think would allow a lot of what cassidy hutchinson said would there's some things when she heard that someone else heard something that's what's called hearsay within hearsay that likely couldn't come in but then as karen said you would just subpoena those people and get the testimony from them you know there's also at the end of the hearing we learned about witness intimidation taking place and it's just a cartoonish kind of witness intimidation but nonetheless incredibly serious incredibly threatening like you it would be a bad hollywood script to see the text messages and other messages that liz cheney put up at the end of this emergency hearing where people were approaching witnesses that were speaking to the january 6th committee and saying things like look you're on trump's team and trump's going to take care of you and we know you're going to be a great witness for us and we wouldn't want you to do anything that would be you know harmful because we know that you're a team player you know if you gave me a hollywood script that said that or you gave that to me as like a law school hypothetical i would say this is just some corny stuff that's like you know that, that that people don't really say but you know it turns out and the more we're hearing about it from you know sources who are speaking to the media that it does appear was either mark meadows directly or mark meadows agent who was saying things like that to cassidy hutchinson basically saying we're going to take care of you we want you to be a team player here and the implication being if you don't help us out you know you're going to be hurt or you're going to be harmed and we know that one of the other tactics that have been used um, is that the trump administration and the trump campaign has used all that money that they've raised defrauding donors to hire lawyers for people in the inner circle so that they could all be on message and not not tell the truth and that's been another thing that's been kind of come out of this and so horrific conduct there and also potential um violations of 18 us code 1001 deceiving lying falsifying statements to federal agents and, and federal prosecutors here tony ornato for example who's been someone who headed up the secret service under trump you know his statements um or omissions about what took place in the suv when trump lunged at secret service agents many sources are now confirming cassidy hutchinson's version of events that what she heard is things that they were aware of as well and did tony ornato and other people tell that to the january 6th committee have they been hiding and concealing that and can they be prosecuted for that in mafia prosecutions you often see crimes of obstruction you often see crimes uh of of uh witness tampering uh crimes of materially false statements and so we will see what uh what becomes of that i do want to switch gears right now and talk about uh the supreme court case involving the separation of church and state or should i say vitiating the separation of church and state and it is in a case called 
Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Now, in Kennedy versus Bremerton, you have a a uh, football coach in uh, a school district up in Washington state, the coach would lead prayers after the game, or he would start it off as he was doing personal prayers, but then other people would join and other students would join and then other teams would join. And after the game, it kind of became this semi formal thing where they would all pray together after the game, the school got a reputation for like, this is what would take place after the game. And the school had certain concerns about the uh, establishment clause, which is the separation of church and state. And they didn't end up renewing this coach's contract. And the coach said, basically, you didn't renew my contract in violation of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Both the establishment clause and the free exercise clause are both tenants of the First Amendment. And the coach said, I have the right to freely exercise my religion. And this is the state saying that what I'm doing is a private prayer. You shouldn't be able to interfere with what I'm doing. And what the school said is, well, we we're okay with you praying on your own time. We're okay with this being private prayer. In fact, here are locations you can do it after the game. We, we are totally okay with it. The effect of what you're doing as a football coach for a school district, doing it on the field like that has the effect of looking like the school is promoting one particular religion over the other. And so we as a school are concerned that that violates the establishment clause. And so, no, we can't renew your contract. He sued and went up to the Supreme Court. And in a 6-3 decision, the same 6-3 that overturned Dobbs um, or that overturned Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision, the same 6-3 here said, um, no, it was a violation of the coach's free exercise clause. He had the right to do that. And in doing this, what the Supreme Court did is they abolished a precedent, a longstanding precedent, which had been modified slightly over the years. But this precedent is the lemon test. And the lemon test looks at the effect of conduct to see if it could be a violation of the separation of powers. And what the court said is, let's not look at the effect. What we should look at as historical tradition and how the Supreme Court views historical tradition. Now, the effect test, effect based tests for modern societies seem to be the right types of tests, in my view, to apply. How does certain conduct affect certain society issues now? And we balance and weigh the interests. But increasingly, in all of these cases, this is a commonality. The Supreme Court saying, let's not look at the effect. Let's just look at our version of what we believe history is. And when they go through that analysis, you can pretty much justify anything, right? I mean, at the end of the day, when someone tells you, hey, this is what happened, this is my version of history, their version of history is that the coach should be able to lead prayer. And you may be saying, well, what's so bad about this? It's just a coach, it's a private prayer, you know, and it is a very sympathetic fact pattern. I, I get it. That's why the Supreme Court selected this specific case so that they could eventually abolish, though, what's known as the lemon test, so that in future cases that come before the court and other federal courts, the um, separation of church and state. Courts will just say, hey, we're not going to look at the effect. Let's look at tradition. And they're going to allow all of this conduct to um, take place in violation of the separation of powers. What do you think, Eric? 
So I'm going to start by reading the First Amendment, because I think it's important to just remind ourselves of what it says. And the First Amendment has three sections, all separated by semicolons. Okay, so the first section uh, separated by a semicolon is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof semicolon. And, and it's that first clause, you know, then it talks about freedom of speech, semicolon, and then the freedom to peaceably assemble. So those are the three sections. And so they talk about that first section, right? And, and it's all sort of bundled together. And I think what you're talking about and the effect is, is really the key, because think about it, you know, the First Amendment allows me to say the word fire, right? I can say that right now, because it has no effect on anyone or anything. But if I ran into a crowded theater, and, you know, that was filled with a 1000 people and started screaming fire, you know, that I don't have a right to do that. And the Supreme Court that has, has upheld that because the effect, you know, it would cause panic and alarm. And, you know, it's people would could get hurt and, you know, would run out. I don't have the right to do that because of the effect. And so, you know, I think that's 100% true. That's how, you know, the Supreme Court analyzes these issues. But for some reason, when it comes to the first clause of the First Amendment, they don't have that, they, they, they sort of ignore that in this particular case. And, you know, Thomas in his, um, you know, Thomas made it very clear, I'm sure you noticed this when he said, you know, you can take a knee, you, you could take a knee, a knee for the national anthem, anthem, you should be able to take a knee for prayer. You know, I thought that was a, a direct reference to Colin Kaepernick there, right? And, you know, when I read the, the decision, I kind of thought what you just said, it's not a sympathetic case, it's a private, you know, he wants to do private prayer. What's the big deal? You know, a Muslim should be able to do their private prayer, you know, whatever, whatever your religion says, go, go for it, do your thing, you know, and, and we, and this, that's a great tradition of this country and let it be private. But when you read the dissent in this case, just the gross misstatement of facts that the majority um, did in, in their opinion was just, it's just disgusting. You know, it's, it's just absolutely awful that you can't, read a Supreme Court opinion anymore and really trust that they're at least stating the facts accurately. And maybe, you know, we agree to disagree on what legal standard you apply or, or what the Constitution means. But they absolutely misstated the facts here. They made it seem like it was just, oh, you know, well, nothing to see here. I'm just privately kneeling, you know, not, not hurting anybody. That's not true. What he was doing was he was going on national television and, and you know, and saying that he, doesn't, that, that he doesn't have a right to prayer. And people started storming the fields and, you know, joining him. And then satanic groups were saying, we're, we're saying, okay, then we're going to come. And if you're allowed to go on the field, we're going to come on the field and we're going to do it too. And suddenly it's no longer a private football game. You know, it's not a, it's not a fun family football game where someone's doing a private prayer. Now it's a referendum on, you know, religion and, and church and state and, you know, and very, very disruptive to what's happening at the school. And the majority just ignores all of that. And I just think it's kind of outrageous. And, um, and now, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see if they uphold it when, when other people, you know, when, when Muslims and others want to um, do the same thing, you know, on, on their time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that you mentioned the satanic groups. There's, you know, the specific group, I think it's called the satanic temple, which really doesn't worship Satan. What they do is um, when a religious group will try to vitiate separation of church and state, 
the satanic group will come in and say, well, if you're doing it, then we're going to do this and we're going to be able to do it as well. And so they kind of, it's more of kind of a, 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 a troll of the groups that try to vitiate separation of powers. But going back to a few other things that you mentioned, like you mentioned, you know, their recitation of history, like Clarence Thomas invoking Kaepernick or, you know, talking about a player can kneel. Um, Colin hasn't played since he took a knee. So I don't know what history he's referring to about Colin um, because this coach just got his job back and was permitted to sue. And, and and it's a very different history than I think what's occurred with Colin and the NFL, but it just shows their own skewed view of what history is. The example you give on the First Amendment about the effect of fire. It's a very important point that you raise, screaming fire in a crowded theater. Because what's something the Supreme Court is looking at now? Uh, screaming racist epitaphs and saying and spreading misinformation on social media. And the Supreme Court, if they take a historical view and not look at the effect of what it is to spread this disinformation on Twitter and social media, they could be having an analysis that actually allows that to take place based on their own skewed view. And we see that that's actually a direction that they've indicated that they could be going in for next term and future terms to basically uh, allow regulations of social media companies to permit people to say horrible things on social media platforms based on their own you know, view of let's not look at how this actually affects and impacts people. Let's just look at a historical view of of, of speech and, and our own view of it generally. And so I think those are important things. And then just one other point I want to make there. It's like the Supreme Court half reads the, like they pick and choose now for people who claim to be originalist and textualist on the first amendment, you mentioned, you read it, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise. This Supreme court's like, yeah, uh, we don't really like the first part. Let's focus on the prohibiting its free exercise part. And let's just use those words and let's give it all this meeting in the world, the prohibiting free exercise. And then saying, you know, there really is no separation. Where else do we see this? The Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's, it's one sentence with a few commas, but it's a very clear sentence to me that it's about a well-regulated militia. Yet this Supreme Court in 6-3 decision says, yeah, that well-regulated militia part and being necessary part, eh, let's not read that. Just the right of people to keep and bear just arms. Be, and be consistent. Be consistent. If you're going to read, if it's going to be, let's read what it says and it doesn't say abortion fine, then be consistent. You know, it says well-regulated militia and they just, you know, eviscerate kind of, I don't know, they, they just interpret it to say what they want it to say. It's outrageous. Absolutely. Um, want to talk about another outrageous uh, ruling. And this is in a case involving West Virginia versus the EPA. Um, West Virginia versus EPA um, involved uh, really kind of common sense regulations by the EPA um, to address climate change um, and uh, regulating carbon emissions from coal-fired power plants and setting caps on what these power plants could emit um, as moving and moving over to clean energy. That was the overall strategy by the EPA. Um, and West Virginia and a number of special interests, very well-funded groups who um, don't realize that 
if there is no world, there is no business. If you are dead, you can't engage in business, but their short-sightedness is we don't care about the environment. Don't look up. Let's just destroy the environment for kind of short-term uh, profits. Um, but they funded this uh, this litigation, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court ruled here, what, and it was, a, it was written by um, Justice Roberts um, for the court. And Justice Roberts, you know, it, it's, it's a really cowardly opinion because he's like, what the EPA did made a lot of sense. It seems like a very common sense solution to address a major problem, climate change. But the Congress didn't specifically delegate to the EPA this specific authority to regulate these coal-fired power plants and to allow and to reduce the carbon emissions from these power plants. So because Congress didn't use those magic words, it has such a major impact on the economy that Congress would have to very much specify word for word what it wanted if it was going to have this major impact on the economy. And so they came up with this doctrine that's been discussed, like they call it the major impact doctrine or, or the major important decision doctrine. Uh, you know, it, it just seems like these people are just making, just making stuff up, it's even though Congress gave, it, it, it's like, it's like a, like a, like a second grader, right? Just like coming up with some excuse to their parents. That's like the Supreme Court major issue doctrine, major issue doctrine, right? It's like some, it's it's crazy stuff. So based on this doctrine that they've made up, they basically say, um, even though Congress gave the EPA the right to regulate in this area and to anticipate things in the future, that no, 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 they didn't specifically say it. But this has far-reaching implications on other agencies too, because literally. It's not the Congress because it's a broken system based on other Supreme Court rulings. You know, they they give dictates and kind of broad brushes and then the agencies implement them. Congress doesn't specify point by point, bullet by bullet, what the agency has to do in each specific task. Like they, they couldn't reach compromises if they had to do that. And that's now what the Supreme Court's telling Congress it had to do. So, you know, securities and SEC regulations, and you go down the list of any agency and likely those regulations will be deemed invalid unless Congress specifically gave word for word those areas, as opposed to the broad delegations that Congress did in the past. It's a real problematic ruling for the environment and for all agencies. And it just shows the Supreme Court's stupidity. Yeah. I mean, look, look, let's remind people sort of, you know, the three branches, we have the three branches of government and, you know, the legislative branch is who make laws. And, um, but you also have the executive branch who has administrative agencies who carry out those laws, right? And, and so, you know, it, there is sort of a, a, a tension here between the, the executive branch who interprets the law of what the administrative, um, I'm sorry, what the legislative branch um, um, what they, what they, when they pass laws, what they say. But, you know, when it comes to things like the environment, it's so clear that they, that they have to keep it general 
because technology and things change so quickly that you don't want a law to become um, obsolete, you know, in a, which which happens in situations like this. And so it was very clear um, that the, you know, the law they referred to, the Clean Air Act, you know, from I think of the 1970s, you know, and that's what they were sort of referring to is what, what are you going to do? They're going to say this is the technology from the 70s, that that's what you can use? No, of course, that's what that's what the EPA does is, is that agency sort of looks to what that law said and what they do is they make rules that are consistent with that. But, you know, what, what they basically said in this decision was, you know, there's been an, an explosive growth of the administrative state and they just don't like it. You know, they don't like that, you know, that that what they call the administrative state, you know, they think it's too big. It's big. Gov- this is a referendum against big government is what is really what this what they're doing here. And it's just it's just a shame because, you know, this is probably the most important um, issue of our time is climate change. You know, without without an earth to to be on uh we're not going to be here to have these important discussions or to, you know, live our lives. So it's, it's, this one is just, you know, confounding to me. Yeah. Section 111 of the authorization uh, for the EPA basically authorizes the EPA to quote, select the best system of emission reductions for power plants. And just as Kagan points that out in her dissent, she goes, what else do you want? Congress to say they provided that language, come up with the best systems for emission reduction in power plants. And in this case, that's exactly what the EPA did by capping carbon dioxide emissions at a certain level in coal fire power plants. <laughs> it's, what they, it's word for word what they did. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's not enough. But to your point, Karen, that's what they want to do. They want to dismantle the federal government um, they want to allow, uh, you know, businesses to run unfettered and, you know, and for states to do whatever states want to do, except except when it comes to elections, at which case we should ignore state courts and governors and just focus on the legislature and what's called well, the well, state. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you get to that. The, 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 there we should ignore like this, we should view the state that when it comes to elections as just the legislative branch of the state is this independent state legislator, doctor, which is so dangerous. I want to talk briefly and give people some addition. You know, we started off with, I think, some good news about the Gen 6 theory. I want to just chirp in some good news here on the Trump SPAC being subpoenaed by a federal grand jury in New York, the special purpose acquisition company. I've explained to people what the SPAC is. The SPAC is a holding company um, that merges with a private company and brings that private company public. So it's almost like a marriage between a holding company and a private company to basically do what an IPO does. And an IPO, it takes a much longer time to do. And so this SPAC vehicle was uh, utilized uh, a ton under the Trump administration. It's become less utilized kind of recently, and it's been more scrutinized by the Biden administration and the SEC. But it's basically a quicker way to go um, IPO. And this group, uh, this private group merged with this Trump media company, which didn't even exist 
um, at the time. Digital World Acquisition Company is the name of the, the private entity. At the time, Truth Social wasn't even a real thing. And so the question is, is how did you merge into a thing that didn't really even exist in the first place? Because normally when there's a merger, there's a private company that like has revenue and existed. And so what you're not allowed to do with the SPAC is have conversations um, before the SPAC is formed. And one of the things the SEC is investigating, and I think the DOJ is investigating, is whether there was conversations that took place before the SPAC was formed, which is a violation of law. And I also think there's an investigation into insider trading taking place because the trading volumes and practices, you know, when this was announced were so unusual and it followed such a classic pattern of a pump and dump. And boy, has it been dumped and boy, was it pumped. Um, but right now it was, it's trading at, you know, I'll go check what it's trading at. But last time I checked, it was trading in the twenties. They pumped it up to like 170 with all the things you're not supposed to do when it comes to a SPAC, all of the statements that Trump would make, all those public statements that were kind of put out in the market are exactly what you want to avoid. Um, and there actually hasn't even been, people don't realize this, a formal merger yet. There was only the announcement of the merger which made the stock price of the SPAC kind of shoot up. But this really threatens whether there could be an actual merger that will end up taking place between the SPAC and Truth Social. I don't think it's ended up going to, it seems like there was a lot of unlawful conduct here. The moment this thing was announced, the day after I said, uh, -uh this, there's, this smells beyond suspicious. And I, I thought it would go down this route and sure enough it is. What do you know about this, Karen? Yeah, look, you know, that. I, I think we learned about this because the SPAC had to do some public filings, right? And um, right. so we, we learned about this, that they were served with different subpoenas, um, both the uh, SEC and the DOJ, uh, the Southern District of New York, actually, in particular, which is the federal prosecutor in Manhattan. And so there is both a, an administrative regulatory um, investigation, but clearly a criminal investigation. And I think that makes sense with what you're saying could be insider trading, it could be you know, something else, you know, it could be um, the pump and dump, who, who knows what it's going to be. But I think the fact that the Southern District is, is, is also doing this is, is quite significant that there's a criminal prosecution, or at least investigation into this. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to watch this and see and, and see where it goes. Absolutely. All right. Now let's talk about what I really want to talk about this independent state legislator. This, this, I just want to, I just want to put a pin in this. I think this is the most single most dangerous of all the Supreme Court kind of decisions and all the things they've been chipping away at. This case has the potential, in my opinion, to be the single most dangerous thing this Supreme Court will have ever done. So I just wanted to say that so that people really listen to what you're about to say. And so the Supreme Court granted cert, certiari, so which means they haven't made any ruling on the, this independent state legislator doctrine yet. But when they take the case, it means they have an interest in ruling on it. We know from past opinions that were rendered in dicta, D-I-C-T-A, meaning statements that kind of throw away statements that are made, but like 
The reality is, is that who knows what dicta even means anymore based on the Supreme Court. What dicta, they taught us in law school what dicta was, is like a statement that wasn't precedent, but was something that the Supreme Court may say in like a throwaway line that was like, well, it shows you what they're thinking, but it's not like the underlying ruling, um, but at least shows you where their mind's at. But we know from, from what we've seen so far that you have Gorsuch, you have uh, Clarence Thomas, you have Kavanaugh and you have Alito, who are all supportive in one way or another, or believe the independent state legislator doctrine is important and a serious issue that deserves review, which usually means they want to uphold it. We don't know where Barrett stands, because I think by the time that dicta was written, she wasn't appointed yet. But I pretty much can guarantee as she stands with them. So that pretty much gives you five people to uphold this independent state legislature doctrine. Um, but this is a case that's arising out of a challenge to gerrymandering um, in North Carolina. Um, and the state court and the court system reviews political gerrymandering gerrymandering generally, they're courts, they courts do what courts do, they review whether the legislative branch violated the law. And what the independent state legislature doctrine says, is that no, the court system shouldn't even look at what we do. We as the independent state legislature, right? Um, we get to make these calls on our own, and nobody can second guess us. Nobody. We just get to do whatever we want to do. It's such a radical, insane theory when when you break it down. And North Carolina's Supreme Court, their highest court, were like, no, that's not a real thing. Like, I'm sorry, like that makes no sense whatsoever. If that was, if that was the case, it would totally destroy all balance of powers. What would be the point of courts? Why would an independent? Why would the legislature have no check on it? That literally makes no sense. But the United States Supreme Court said, let's hear this independent state legislator doctrine. And it all arises out of this uh, election clause in the Constitution. And let me read for everybody what the election clause uh, says. Uh, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, Election Clause. The time, place, and matter of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So that's what it says. <laughs> that's the language. I laugh, but I laugh because it's so insane. I mean, what, what the clause basically says is that they can set the date. Like they can set the time of it. Not that they become dictators and that the legislature doesn't have to listen to courts or that courts have no function. Um, but where this has broad implication is, yes, in the gerrymandering arena, because you could have the legislature's gerrymander however they want. And then a state can't say that's a violation of the state constitution of anything. You know, it's not a violation of law, like it's, it's it, whether it violates civil rights, whether it's partisan and inappropriate in the state. In the North Carolina case, what's so crazy too, is they gave, this is like a little nuance of it. They gave the court, the, uh, the legislature gave the court the authority to review its partisan gerrymandering. And then when they didn't like the ruling, they said independent state legislator doctrine. And that was in a state that allowed the court to even look at it. They said the courts, you shouldn't look at it. But in other states, they're saying courts don't look at us. We're going to gerrymander however we want. 
And then it fur you take it a step further, but really not much further. If the independent legislator doctrine exists, then they can prescribe their own electors and do literally whatever they want and send whoever they want on January 6th, not what the people vote on. And according to them, they can't be challenged at all by the courts in any way. Karen. I mean, the, you know, the reason I think this is the single most dangerous um, potential, da- potentially dangerous case that could be ruled on is if they do rule that, that state legislators um, have the sole, um, the absolute sole final say on what's going to happen in federal elections, given the fact that most state legislators legislatures are controlled in this country by Republicans. Um, I, I, I can't, I, I think it was like 70% um, that are- Which represent so, okay. a minority of the population by far. But correct, yes. correct. So currently the Republicans have complete control uh, over state legislatures in 30 states, 30, whereas the Democrats control just 17. And as a result, I think what you're going to see if they rule this way, that they're going to be able to do everything from, you know, put in their own slate of electors. They don't have to certify elections. You know, they, they're going to be able to do whatever they want. Gerrymandering, you know, will suddenly become a thing. You know, partisan gerrymandering will be allowed. You know, this doctrine it has such potential far reaching implications for future elections and we see what happens you in a presidential election right you know you have you have this doctrine and then suddenly all the, the states that didn't like the the way thing you know the the way um, the popular vote went they can put in their own slate of electors potentially you know without any check whatsoever any and and that just makes no sense you know the entire our, our entire country was founded on a system of checks and balances that no one branch was supposed to have any more power than the rest and this doctrine makes it seem like Congress, imagine a situation where Congress passes a law and they say, sorry, Supreme Court, you can't rule on this law because you know what? The Constitution allows me to make a rule here. No, that that's not the case. And the president can't appoint uh, certain people to, you know, cabinet positions without Senate confirmation. You know, I mean, there's checks and balances. And so to say that a state you know, that this one clause, that time, place, and manner, there, there's basically reading the word manner and, and making it seem like, well, that means anything goes, whatever they want, without any check. It, it just flies in the face of the founding of this country, you know, and, and the separation of powers and checks and balances. And so to me, this could potentially have such far-reaching implications and they could it, uh, suddenly the, the both the electoral college and the popular vote means nothing. Um, state legislators can can kind of say what do whatever they want. And, you know, you see the implications of that. You see what happens. You know, you you then suddenly no longer do the people vote for the people that, you know, there's no longer representatives who are coming uh, into power that were voted on by the people. So. I hope they do the right thing here because this one is is has has is dangerous um, dangerous you know beyond measure without being an alarmist you know I, I I always hesitate to kind of say things that sound alarmist um, 
or to go to the extreme. But this one, when you take it to the extreme, really impacts future presidents, future Supreme Court appointments, and um, future Senate and House uh, um, races in ways that I don't think you can even remotely interpret in the Constitution. And I'll leave people with this, although I don't mean to leave people on a note of uh, something that's kind of scary, but it's just something that needs to be shared is that when you look at systems where they've established authoritarian regimes, they operate under the aegis of a constitution of systems, and they pretend that those systems have meaning. And so if you look at you know, the way Iran and their Supreme Leadership Council rules, you know, for an example, like they have a body of judicial officers who make decisions. If you look at apartheid South Africa, um, it just so happened in apartheid South Africa that the uh, significantly small white minority would always win elections and they would control all the infrastructure um, when that was not actually what the will of the people wanted to be through the way the system was controlled there. And I think that the Republican Party right now, the radical right extremist Republican Party, I think they actually look at apartheid South Africa as an example and a model of something that they want to do here in the United States in which they're doing. They see big, dramatic demographic shifts and changes in the United States. And they say the majority of Americans don't support our radical agenda anymore. Currently, and especially as we look towards Gen Z and future generations, our radical extremist views are not what America wants. If you were to do a popular vote on all of these issues that are before the Supreme Court, if you were to actually do popular votes generally, even within the states, you'd have Democrats win over and over again. So the only way Republicans win is if they cheat, is if they completely manipulate the system. And that's what they're trying to do with the Constitution, with doctrines like the state legislative doctrine, like coming up with the major question doctrine when it comes to what the agencies can do. By the way, like, calling something a doctrine doesn't suddenly make it some special thing. Like I'm going to, you know, this is our legal AF doctrine, you know, like just because I call it a doctrine doesn't make it so, but they make it sound so official. They just made that up, by the way in this decision, the major questions doctrine, like, you know, but they make it seem like it's something that, you know, the founders intended, but they made it up. It's completely made up by them. You know, which is why, you know, on this weekend, particularly, you know, you know, Karen and I felt we had to do this legal AF because the solution is really you who is listening to it and becoming educated about these issues, sharing this information with other people, letting everybody know that we're on code red alert and that we need to protect our democracy. There's far more of us than there are of the radical right extremists out there. But we see in other countries that small groups of radical extremists with a very complacent and nonchalant, I can't be bothered majority, that that radical extremist smaller group is sometimes able to take power. And we can't let that happen here. That's why we do this show each and every weekend and we appreciate your time. Karen, I appreciate you joining me here and going over all of these issues. Everybody, you can support the show also by checking out store.midastouch.com, store.midastouch.com for all the Midas Touch gear. Um, and appreciate everybody who's 
um, given uh, contributions in the chat. Um, make sure you subscribe on YouTube to the Midas Touch YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe on audio and leave a five-star review. Um, please, it helps with the algorithm. Thank you so much for listening to Legal Lab. Karen, thanks for joining me. Great to see you. Boogie, Boogie says uh, goodbye. He wanted to join us today as well. Have a great time in Mexico, Ben. Goodbye, Boogie. We'll see you next time on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Touch.